All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Energy Podcast, a podcast where we talk about movies from a Roth party and anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel, my co-host is Robert, and we're going to talk about Star Trek Beyond today. We also have a special guest we'll be introducing in a moment, but before we get to that, let's say hello to Robert. How are you, sir? Hello, my fluffy freedom lovers. How are you doing this evening, this day, this whatever it is when you happen to be listening to this some off time in the far-flung future? And today we're going into the far-flung future, so uh, we're boldly going. It's going to be exciting. We're going to have this uh, chime of our Vulcan lives. Doing great, Dan. How are you? I'm doing well. We've been uh, doing lots of work on the site, lots of updates, updated the contact about podcast page, added a quotes page, also updated the artwork on the YouTube channel. Uh, so if you guys like us at all, or even if you don't, uh, if there's any way we can bribe you into this, go and subscribe to us at the YouTube channel. There's links all over our site. Uh, we need to get over a hundred people, uh, subscribe and then we can get our custom URL. I'm really pushing for that. Uh, we've also started a private closed actual anarchy group on the Facebook. So you can say whatever you wish in there and it won't, uh, leak out. Well, not easily anyway. And our guest is actually in there as well. And, uh, Robert, why don't we uh, say who our guest is? I, I only know him by his first name, and I don't even know if that's a pseudonym or not. He's, 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 a, he's supposedly twice our age, so he's an old, old, teetering, tottering, forgetful old man. <coughs> he's like 80. And uh, <laughs> so be nice to him. And his name is Mark. Or at least that's what he calls himself. If that's his real name, I have no idea. But he's a super old style old man. So be nice to him. Everybody welcome Mark, everybody. Hey, yeah, Mark. That's right. This is Mark Deardorf. He comes to us from ScienceViaMarkets.com. He writes sci-fi and on science topics and about uh, how the market is related to that, free market principles. He's been shooting the shit with us for about an hour already. We've been laughing and cracking it up, and uh, we figured we might as well just start the show. So, Mark, how are you doing, sir? Why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Mark E. Deardorf. Um, I was born and raised in California, SoCal, um, born in beautiful downtown Burbank. Uh, for those of you old enough to remember the uh, Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, uh, my mother was born in California, central in the Central Valley, or actually, she, yeah, in Hanford, California. Um, she ended up by the coast, uh, then down into the L.A. area. Uh, my dad moved from Pennsylvania in the Air Force. He uh, flew over Germany, the navigator, B-17s, dropping bombs on the fatherland, and then uh, out to California, 
actually before we started dropping the bombs, they got married down in Texas. And then I was uh, born in 1953, so I'll be um, 64 in a month and a half in June. Uh, I went to we'll, university. We'll still love you. We'll still love That's, you when you're yeah, 64. I, I understand. I'll be uh, another five years. I'll be, you know, I'll be the, my favorite age is my favorite number, 69. So anyway, um, um, I'm married, uh, have two adult children. Um, I moved here to Minnesota when I was 63, uh, just almost on my 63rd birthday. My son moved here uh, 10 years ago because he could not afford a home in San Diego. Um, where the starter house is about uh, 300 and some thousand dollars for maybe uh, 1,200 square feet. Um, unless you live about 60 or 70 miles from town and want to make that commute. Uh, so we moved back here, and my daughter and her husband will be moving here uh, next fall. He's a gunsmith, which makes him a perfect candidate for living in Minnesota, where uh, uh, we may actually have a constitutional carry law. Uh, my wife and I just picked up our uh, our um, carry permits and uh, will now have uh, reciprocity in about, oh, I don't know, 40-some states. So um, be careful around, around us, okay? We are trigger-happy. So, Mark, thanks for the uh, old background there, the the early part of the story. What kind of projects are you working on now? What do you talk about on your website? And uh, I think you mentioned you're working on a book. Yeah, well, I, I um, was, uh, I'm an engineer by profession, and uh, I have degrees in, in uh, engineering and economics. I'm also a seismologist. Um, since I retired, though I still do some consulting, I've uh, decided to devote my time to uh, writing and uh, informing uh, people about uh, the realities of science. There are too many people who are lost in the uh, in the uh, prima donna uh, credulity of um, Hollywood and believing things which are highly unlikely, if not damn impossible, um, particularly around modern, uh, modern cinema and uh, television fiction about science, uh, things like the Star Trek universe and, of course, uh, Star Wars, uh, both of which are full of uh, fantasy um, masquerading as science. Uh, so I write about that on my website. I also do um, science fiction criticism, um, a lot of uh, discussion of the, of the uh, surveillance state the dangers of uh, artificial intel of unchecked artificial intelligence. Um, how we not need or we shouldn't forget the uh, concept of Asimov's four laws of robotics. Actually, the original three laws plus the zeroth law that that was added later, and um, the problems of potential uh, virtual reality autocracy. Um, I'm kind of critical of Elon Musk. Um, not only for his uh, use of uh, government funding to build his own empire, but um, his seemingly two-faced view of, uh, of artificial intelligence and virtual reality. On the one hand, he warns of the problems of artificial intelligence making us 
less than necessary part of uh, of uh, the world um, or becoming, uh, I think, what was the word he used, irrelevant. Um, promoting that, we add a thing to our uh, organics uh, called neural lace, which is a passive um, addition to our uh, to our uh, to our brain, which is more kind of like a scaffolding, uh, which will help us develop more neural tissue. Um, and then on the other hand, he's uh, building a company, or at least partially involved in a company called the Neural Link, which will uh, help us plug into computers. It's uh, uh, kind of uh, bringing William Gibson's uh, um, neuromancer, neuromancer, yeah, in the neuromancer uh, world, the um, um, cyberspace, which was of course uh, William Gibson's invention back in the uh, uh, back in the eighties uh, um, when neuromancer was written. Um, of course, uh, the concept predated Gibson. Uh, Phil Dick really wrote about it. Uh, much earlier, um, uh, and he wrote about uh, he wrote about it more. Uh, uh, I think more passionately in many ways than Gibson did. Gibson gave us some concreteness and uh, some clarity, um, but Dick wrote about it far more uh, in, a, in a spiritual and. Uh, um, uh, emotional way uh, but both are very important to understand and it, it uh, it's just an extension of uh, of Huxley and Orwell um, and in many ways of Brad Bradbury uh, when we get to this uh, when we get to the state and then we forget about it um, we forget about it because uh, our society is so distracted with um, the milieu of of, of electronia, as I call it, it's my little neologism um, for uh, um, you know for that whole uh, uh, glittering LCD screen that, that that hangs in front of us everywhere we look. It's kind of built into our psyche now. So, um, and then I'm also writing about science, uh, trying to um, show people that. Uh, they shouldn't get so excited about about a future that's going to um, do their do their life for them. Yeah. It's still a world where we're going to have to work. It's still a world ahead of us that's not ever going to be post. Um, um, what was the word that we were using earlier, Daniel? Uh, post scarcity. There's never going to be a lack uh, for want. Um, there will always be. There'll always be need, and um, whenever there's a need, there'll always be want. Because um, um, no matter how much our needs are met, it's always going to turn into a want. Um, so wants always uh, um, um, transmogrify into needs, no matter no matter what. Nobody else can decide what our needs are, and they may try to hold us in. They may try to imprison us and tell us, "Well, this is all you need." You know, our parents always wanted to tell us that. You know, my wife tries to tell me that all the time. You only need this. And I, I, I found something on the Internet that I really liked. And it, really determined, it, it really is a statement of my life. Um, I found this black box, and it has a little um, 
not not a hand, but something kind of like a hand, certainly you know, something that is analogous to a hand. Uh, it, it it pokes out of the box and turns it, a switch and turns itself on. And then adjacent to it, there is a hand. And the hand turns the switch back off. But the box will move to avoid the hand. And the hand will move to uh, reassert itself upon the switch. So, and they keep trying to avoid each other. Well, I'm the box, and my wife is the hand. Um, and this is just how we operate. She, um, I, I usually win, but I do it by hiding. So, and, and you know, lots of couples operate this way. There's always this um, furtiveness in a relationship where people like to, you know, sometimes you just have to hide to get what you want. So. Or, you know, you follow the uh, Rolling Stones, uh, um, you know, their, their, their song, you know, you can't always get what you want. You know, you pretend that you believe that, and you go do whatever the hell you want anyway. So, anyway, right? <laughs> yes, human desire is infinite, and market is what best satisfies that. Even though Ancoms will like to say that in a in a resource-based economy, there's everyone's needs will be met, but that's them deciding what your needs are. Well, that's that's the thing, and 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 that's what I that's what I tell. Um, my friends, you don't know what my needs are. You may right. know, you may know objectively what the, what a body chemistry is and know that I need a certain amount of oxygen on a daily basis and that I will emit a certain amount of carbon dioxide and water. Um, uh, that I will need a certain amount of protein and, and carbohydrate um, to burn and that I need to take a certain amount of fat and oils and this many vitamins and minerals and whatnot to maintain my body. Um, I need to pump so much blood. I need certain level of shock waves to assist in the blood flow in my brain, so I need to walk. Um, walking is very important to assist in the maintenance of, 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 of good cognitive function in a brain. You know, bicycling is not the best way to maintain good cognitive function in exercise because of the shock waves that are developed in walking and running. So, in right. high, you know, high impact is very, but people don't know that necessarily. They can't determine for me what I need. I am the only one that can determine that. It's the same with, with value of, 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 of a good. Right. You know, nobody can tell me what something is worth. Only I can. It, right, I can't tell you what makes you happy. You can't tell me what makes me happy. Well, that's right. And no one can say, you know, it, it's it's like the old idea, um, well, that person shouldn't shoot himself. We should tell him, we should go stop him. It's not good. It wouldn't be good for him to kill himself. It wouldn't be good for him to pull that trigger. Well, what do you mean? It's his decision, and and we should make a law against it. Well... Why? A lot of good right. it's going to do them. Well, you know, you know that, do that all the time. Well, the government will say make a law that make it so you can't buy a, a large soda. And that's that's because, you know, I'm always considering that is is you see that's where classical liberalism differs with with um, Rothbard and Mises because classical liberalism it's it's where it's where Locke. 
um, and the Declaration of Independence would differ with the Austrian approach because the Declaration of Independence talks about inalienable rights or unalienable, which is a, really a mis, misinterpretation of the way the word should be spelled and used. Um, it may have been the spelling of the day, but it, the real spelling of the day is inalienable. But what it means is that it's it's inalienable, period. You do not, according to the Declaration of Independence, a natural right, a God-granted right, is a right that I cannot alienate. If I have a right to life granted by God, I cannot take my own life by that definition. That's why we're always lost against attempted suicide. Obviously, you can't make a law against suicide because once it's, it, it, the, the act is the act is committed, there is no right. punishment. How do, you, how do you punish it? You, you can't punish <laughs> it, but you are able to punish an attempted suicide. Um, but those laws, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure if there are any laws like that left on the books. Um, but there were laws like that at one time, and they were there because of that very concept of an inalienable right, uh, an inalienable natural right, a right granted by God. Um, you had no right to, to you know, to, to do it. Similarly, you did not have a right to alienate your own um, right to liberty. In other words, you did not have the right to sell yourself into slavery, to um, to um, um, sell yourself into a um, uh, into a service contract. Um, oh, um, well, I can't think of the name of it now. Where where someone would come over from England, indenture servitude, and indenture. Yeah, you cannot you cannot indenture yourself. And that was part of the Constitution. Um, so, yeah, those became um, um, decried in the, in the Declaration of Independence because of the concept of natural right. In this case, God-given right. Um, um, rights granted by our Creator. Um, so, um, so that's Mark, everyone. Welcome, Mark. <laughs> hey, Mark. How you doing, buddy? Okay. All right. So, hey, let's start talking about this movie, Star Trek Beyond. Uh, and honestly, we can just kind of use it as a jumping off point into all of the Star Trek universe and any concepts or ideas that uh, come to mind. Star Trek Beyond Belief. Um, this is actually a fairly well-reviewed movie. All these Star Trek reboot movies uh, are fairly well-reviewed. Uh, the second one, I think, less so. But this one got an 86% from Google. 84% Rotten Tomatoes and a 7.1 on IMDb. It made uh, $343 million at the box office. It was directed by uh, the Fast and the Furious alum Justin Lin. And here's the little synopsis Google gives us. A surprise attack in outer space forces the Enterprise to crash land on a mysterious world. The assault came from Crawl, a lizard-like dictator who derives his energy by sucking the life out of his victim. Crawl needs an ancient artifact and valuable artifacts to board the badly damaged starship left stranded in a rugged wilderness. Kirk, Spock, and the rest of the crew must now battle a deadly alien race while trying to find a way off their hostile planet. So, Mark, what's your first note? What's your first talking point? What's your first bullet point? What are we doing here? Well, actually, my first bullet point, um, I didn't write down because um, I, I it, it's hard to write down a um, 
pile of vomit on the floor. <laughs> um, okay. I agree. Um, that, so you didn't like the movie, Mark? Well, the it. movie is so illogical. Um, the, the, the screenplay is horrible. Now, the, the screenplay was written... I, now I can't think of the name of the guy. It was written by... Simon Pegg. Yes, yeah, Simon Pegg, who... who right. Who, who hot is Fuzz. A, who a hot Fuzz. A um, Shaun of the Dead. End of the World. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shaun of the, the Dead. The, the, world, the, world, the World's End. The world, right. You know, Shaun of the Dead, World's End, and Hot Fuzz are all good movies. I mean, they're 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 huge. End of the world. The world's end is great. Um, right. But I I can't say that he is an excellent. I mean, he's not an excellent screenplay writer. Clearly not. Um, it seems like well, he's a huge Star Trek fan, and maybe that kind of hurt his objective storytelling. No, I mean, there's there's so many there's so many things about this about this movie that are, are, are illogical. Um, the first, the first thing that struck me about this film was the origin of the artifact. He, Kirk happens to come into possession of it in a, a, a rather unrelated negotiation. It, it ends up on his ship and instead of leaving it, um, at the, um, way station that he ends up, which is another technological absurdity. Um, I, I can't remember what they call the stupid thing. I mean, it was called a, a glass snowball by McCoy, which, um, unfortunately, it wasn't filled with artificial snowflakes and water. But um, um, my, my question again for that is, where the hell do they get all the oxygen to fill? I mean, you would think they would put it near a planet or something where they could derive some materials but it seems to be out in the middle of nowhere. Um, they got uh, it from science, Mark. The science, the, the science, the science. That's right. Wait, was it Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye doing the science for this? It was, no, it was Simon Pegg. It was Simon oh. Pegg. Doing the science. Yeah. Oh, well, so uh, <laughs> a level up. That's right. Probably. That's right. It was Simon Pegg. It was, Yeah. <laughs> No, if I had been doing the science, it would have made sense. But um, um, but you see, I, I learn science by by learning science, not by um, watching science fiction or watching uh, Star Trek learn science fiction. So um, so there's that. Um, and then the second is, how is it that Kral knew it? The, the, the Enterprise actually had the thing in the first place. There's, there's no information about how he knew that it came to be in Kirk's possession. It's just a mystery. It's an unexplained mystery. Yeah, that, that is absolutely missing from the script. It seemed like it was that was a scene that was left on the cutting room floor or something. There should have absolutely been some sort of scene where that scientist lady or the person pretending to be a scientist lady finds out that it's on board the ship. Right. Or some, something. Something. Well, there's a few other mysteries. Absolutely, he absolutely attacks the ship and goes right. straight for it. Well, there's a, there's a few other mysteries that I want to bring out at the front here. Um, why, do, when they're escaping to the planet surface, that Scott ends up at the edge of the cliff, hanging on Fast and Furious style, you know, and, of course, every right. other 
over the over the cliff edge of the cliff kind of thing. I mean, this is only a uh, 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 you know a a typical um, uh, cliche in 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 movies, uh, action movies, um, he's right. hanging hanging there, and then a, a, a scene or two later, he's on the ground walking around. I think what they missed was the, they missed the scene where he climbs down because what actually happened is that was his, they, they, they fell to his death and that's why he's not going to be any more movie. They, they missed the shot and they, they wrote it, they, they told a completely different story to the press as to what happened. So, um, I know that's just my, that's just my uh, suspicion. I mean, um, Alex Jones may have a different story. I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, I can out Alex Jones, Alex Jones, if I have. Um, and You're crazier question, than Alex Jones? Okay. Well, I could, I could be. Um, okay. I, it's, it's not performance art. I mean, I don't talk about, you know, I'm a seething, uh, you know, uh, my, my brain is a seething, uh, a seething sponge of energy or something like that. Is that uh, what he said? Uh, he says strange things. I, I've only seen, you know, 10-second clips and things like that. Um, another interesting thing is about this nebula. Now, every nebula, uh, the Enterprise, seems from any particular series, any time they go into a nebula, they always seem to lose the ability to communicate. Um, now, in this case, um, I think... Let me see, let me see my notes here. Why are so many nebula in, in, in fucking communicado? I, I, maybe it's the neb, because it's the nebula avocado. Um, maybe. It's definitely a trope that they use, that the, the screenwriters use to, you know, uh, I, I, th- create, I think, create difficulties. I think it should the, be the, the nebula. I think overcome. it should be the nebula avocado because they've discovered now, three centuries hence, a a, a uh, that there are particles associated with the with the the flavor quark. In this case, it's um it's they're called um let's see what could we call these things? I know um cilantrinos. So shoot. <laughs> The nebula avocado with cilantrino. And now the Roman Catholic Church is going to travel to the, um, to, to the, um, this nebula to find the source of holy moly. Um, in other words, cosmic guacamole. So, um, I don't know. This is, this is the source of south of the border food somewhere in that nebula. I don't know. Um, so that way, so we know why Scotty. Um, okay. Now, Carl needs this, this bioweapon, but he has these, um, these ships, these, um, drones that he uses. Um, I guess the primary weapon, the primary reason he really needs that bioweapon is so that he can have a really cool way to die. Um, and then that right. ship, that ship, um, um, that, that, that engineer, um, um, alien is, is, is working in, out of, um, why is it that he doesn't know where it is? I mean, hell, he was a captain of the stupid thing. Right. I mean, she, she had they, it. They explain it that he, she had it under what? Cloak? 
but yeah, but he he landed the stupid thing there, right? I mean, he had this whole army of people. Yeah, so she's got to. They could have been so out what? searching for it. I mean, what's he been? What's he been drinking? Some kind of beer and smoking dope? I mean, what sense of Mia? I'm um um Maui Wally. I'm sorry. These are these are dopes from my day. You know, some back in the day weed. But uh, I don't. So anyway, what did you what did you think, Mark, of the uh, the motorcycle? You have a problem with that? No, no, I, I not really. But still, um, it's nice that it's working after so many years. Um, um, yeah. I mean, really, come on, how many people are going to have a motorcycle in a starship um, that just just happened to be there for that particular sh- movie? I mean, right. it makes no sense. What, uh, what did you think of the uh, use of music to disrupt all the, uh, the, the communications of the swarm? Well, it, it might as well. I mean, nothing else makes sense. <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, well. it, it, it actually it makes more sense than pretty much anything else in this movie. Um, okay, I get the fact. And if, once I found out that 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 um, woman had duped him, that that um, alien had duped him, you know, I would have just shot her yeah. head off. I mean, well, we don't want we don't want this um, nice treatment. We just 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 blow her head off. I I, I know we're nonviolent anarchists, but I mean, anarchism doesn't sound all that nonviolent to me. Once in a while, justice you know, must be served. Kirk in this reboot seems to be a pretty stupid moron. He's, he's crashed yeah, yeah. Enterprise like three times. Uh, he gets duped all the time. He barely survives. And then they keep promoting the guy. I mean, he's like the quintessential Fail bureaucrat, forward. right? Fails forward. That's right. Um, can't sniff out this... Uh, person who or alien who's uh duping him and man i watched this movie and i was like this is this is a trap obviously well the other thing is you know when they when they're when they're when they're um being attacked by those drones the first time um their shields are ineffective why their shields effect because the shield projector has been damaged but why is the shield projector not protected by the field that's projected is there some reason why it can't protect itself with its own fuel? I mean, this is this is ridiculous. So you're right. Not a, not according to the script, it can't. Of course it's not. Powerful script. Yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean, let's be. I mean, can't we think a little more deeply than the obvious? I mean, that's okay if you're an eight year old, or even. I mean, for a lot of these guys in their twenties, they and look past that stuff again because these are Pollyannas who see Star Trek as, you know, it's it. they look at Star Trek like, you know, Christians who believe in inerrancy of Scripture look at Scripture. So, um, it's all the yeah, same. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not big into the Star Trek community, but I'm wondering how, how these reboots have fared among the, the true hardcore sci-fi fans, the hardcore Star Trek fans. If you go back and watch the whole movies, all the shows and whatnot, especially the original cast movies, these movies are super slow-paced, super slow-paced. But now you get to these reboots, and it's action, adventure, explosion, blowing up, shooting guns and lasers, and nonstop. 
I have a comment on that. Uh, in YouTube, under the trailer for this thing, there's a guy who commented, said, Star Trek is about exploration, first contacts, time directives, hierarchy, special phenomena, alien culture, advanced technology, you know, science shit. All I see here is explosions, ass-kicking, screams, weapons, the Enterprise being destroyed, a fucking again, and a motorcycle. Where are the writers in this thing? That's right. Right. But the problem is, is that Star Trek is not about science either. Star Trek is about fantasy. Star Trek, right. Star Wars, most science fiction. Now, now, see, Guardians of the Galaxy makes no bones about about it being fantasy because it's a comedy. Correct. I mean, yeah, it's a comedy. It's meant to be a comedy. It's it's pure entertainment, and it's great fun. I haven't seen this one, but the first one was was a was it was a hoot, you know. Um, okay. no one. No one agreed. No one went there, you know, expecting to be to to have a serious move. But you know what? There was a lot of seriousness in that move. There was a lot. To, there really was a lot to think about. There was a there was a lot more emotion in that movie, and a lot more. Um, there was a lot more personal emotion than in anything in these the start these Star Trek movies. So, I mean, I had a lot, I identified a lot more with um, personal feelings in that in, in Guardians of the Galaxy, um, personally with the parental relationship and things like that than I than anything in the Star Trek movie. No. Yeah, Daniel, can I throw this one at you? Did you feel a connection to these characters at all? I mean, we've had decades knowing these characters, but maybe it was just this particular movie that I didn't really care about anything that was happening? What about you? Yeah, I'd say that this is probably the worst of the three of the reboots. Uh, Chris Pine, he seems very wooden. The McCoy character is over the top. Um, Scotty, I don't know, Simon Pig I like sometimes, but I think he was trying to make in the engineering, you know, like the drummer in the band, make him cool. So it's like the mm-hmm. drummer got to write the song in this one. So, you know, he's doing the cliffhanger stuff. And then, uh, why did they bring up this, uh, email version of Jar Jar Binks? This, uh, Jayla. Yeah. With the broken Ubonics, uh, language, like she can barely speak. Uh, a complete sentence. She sounds like a, an infant. And <laughs> she's, I, I don't understand what, what the point of her is and why she's, uh, in this black and white face makeup, um, being a, uh, Aboriginal style, like, thick fighter. She was and a why, native that helped them explain, you know, helped no, them no, she, uh, she, she, the, the danger that they were facing, right? Her, her ship crashed there as well, or was attacked, and then she uh, escaped this prison, and she later tells Kirk, don't go to this place because everyone dies. Well, she, she didn't, right? That was a note, Mark, you had in yours? Yeah. Well, her her family did, but she escaped, yeah, but she escaped. That was that was what was kind of, it, 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 it was a miss. Um, right. It was like you know, everyone dies, but she didn't. So you know, so her statement wasn't really accurate. But then she finds this ship, the Franklin, and then cloaks it. How long has she been there? In there, you know, there's this time shift thing, right? Right. The Franklin's been there for years, right? And then she got attacked by this crawl <laughs> person, and and then was imprisoned and then escaped. So how did she and find then it when cloaked it? Right. Or was it you, was cloaked the whole time? And she just ran into it. 
I, I would know. imagine that she cloaked it because she set up those thingamajigs that they turned off when they went to move it, right? These little projectors. Right, and, and then her loud so, music and the singing and the loud noises. So before all that, it was just sitting there uncloaked. So why, why was it not found? I guess we just glossed over that. Who cares, right? That's, just that's right. Moving. I, think a, I think a lot of things happen in these kind of movies where you're just like, it's happening so fast. That people, the directors just hope they you don't notice. <laughs> it doesn't make any well, sense. Well, presumably, action pres- presumably up until she escaped, there was no reason for him to be looking. For it. But he would. But if he knew where it was, and he went back to it, and it was cloaked, he'd wonder why it wasn't there. Well, but they were looking for. Weren't they looking for a ship to get off planet? Or what? What exactly? Yeah, they but they found. Yeah, but they found, they found her first, and then she showed it. She showed him where it was. So they wouldn't have, they, they didn't have to find it first. They found her or she found them. And, uh, and then they, she showed them where it was. But I'm talking about, um, crawl. Um, crawl might have looked. Yeah, let's for talk her. about crawl. Yeah. <laughs> what, hey, before, what about crawl? Get, I mean, let's, let's, let's talk about it a little bit. I just want to yeah, mention yeah, that speaking of the script, while they were filming, like they were starting to film, they had several delays because of multiple script rejection. Mm. <laughs> so this thing... Yeah, not surprising. They should have had a few more. Yeah, they did reshoots. <laughs> right. Looks like it was a mess. Okay, All right, so, so let's talk about Crawl. So, yeah, let's talk about Crawl and his motivations and if he worked at all as a villain for anybody. Um, so in the movie, he is a former, spoiler alert, um, captain of this ship. Right? What was it called? The Jefferson or the Franklin or whatever? Franklin, yeah. And he has since acquired some sort of technology that allows him to suck the life force out of people and it extends his life and makes him stronger, but it also changes the way he looks. So he starts out as this human guy and slowly turns him into this like lizard monster guy. And his whole big beef with the Federation is that they kind of left him alone. He disappeared on this ship, and they never came to get him. And so then that means he wants to teach him a lesson, and he wants to go and kill everybody because conflict makes you stronger, and cooperation is the weakness. So I guess it was what did it? Does that make sense to anybody on any level? I mean, war. I don't think that Germany was better off after World War One. Go ahead, Daniel. Well, I, th- I think there is a point to, you know, you have to struggle, you have to work at something to grow and develop if that's how you take it. But if it's, you must be warlike to advance, then definitely it's an incorrect, fallacious statement. Right. Like you must kill people and murder them and be at war and conflict in order to advance. I mean, you can find your strength through struggle, sure, but you can't learn from dying. And anyway... Mark, well, got, other, got, other, got, other, other people can learn. Other people can learn when you die. Um, but that's sure. If you stick it. your finger in a light socket and then you die from electrocution, people can look at that and say, "Maybe I shouldn't do that." As long as other people are looking, that's right. Right. Always make sure if you plan to die, other people are watching you, so you, you can do the you yeah. do society some good. If you're going to um, die for some stupid reason, make sure it's filmed and put up on YouTube. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, speaking of script, um, here's something that is frequent 
and, and it's been frequent in Star Trek since the next generation, and it's no different in the movies. And that is the repeated failure of, of Starship Enterprise to learn from one episode to the next. They make the same um, failures of judgment over and over and over again. Um, particularly in the television series. Um, and then they usually solve it double cost. Um, um, particularly in the next generation, this, this began. But it was used in, in, in most of the episode, uh, most of the series after that. It didn't happen so much in the original series because science fiction authors were writing it. But once they went to, um, um, writing staffs of, of average writers, um, people that didn't have either science degrees or science fiction backgrounds, then you just, they, they got a machine, which is called the DG, which means double talk generator, and they just, you know, they put in nonsense and got more nonsense out. Um, and then they have people like um, Wesley Crusher, who is, you know, this 13-year-old um, busy buddy um, who who uh, solves problems for no apparent reason. Um, and you have the staff of engineers who apparently know Dick. Uh, and, I mean, it's, 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 the whole show is absurd, and then they have the same problem the next week. Uh, um, um, I, I think it happened in oh, 20 minutes into the movie. Um, you get a lot of double talk in this I don't remember what happens 20 minutes in um, but it's around um, um, when they start gra- oh yeah when the, when the ship's being attacked and they start grabbing their plastic guns and you can tell the way the guns behave that they have no mass because they you know real guns if they're, gonna, if they're energy weapons are going to have to have um, sufficient mass to store energy um, and to do that, you're going to need um, the, uh, the certain materials that have weight that can store energy. You know, you can't just um, have cheap plastic to store energy. I'm sorry, but it's not going to change much over this period of time. I don't believe. I just don't believe the technology is going to get there. Um, or you're going to be able to do that. So uh, at least... Um, um, let's put some reality to the weapons and make weapons act like, uh, you know, like, like real, make them look like they're uh, more difficult to move around than uh, cheap uh, plastic filled with styro- styrofoam. Um, um, you know, reality in the way things behave, it's just like in the holodecks. The holodecks... Uh, I mean, to, to create a guy the size, you know, in, the, in the, one of the Later episodes of the Next Generation, um, there was a, there was one where uh, where Data and Picard were playing the parts of uh, Holmes and Watson. In one episode, they uh, took on Moriarty. Now I figured Moriarty weighed about oh from his period they would have weighed in uh, Englishman in in, in uh, units of of stone, so I figured Moriarty weighs about 12 and a half stone. But if you're going to, uh, as this fellow at Love, uh, what is it, Life, Love, and Anarchy, um, it created totally out of energy, 
then you have to use Einstein's equation of E equals MC squared, where you take the rest mass of 175 pounds in terms of mass, 175-pound mass, um, and multiply that by the square of the speed of light. Well, you come up with, um, I, it's on my website, but I think it's around 7.5 times 10 to the um, 18th joules. Um, 38 joules, just so you'll know, is about what it would feel like if you got hit in the head with a um, eight ounce rock, okay, thrown at, you know, 10 miles an hour from about 20 feet away, or maybe 30 miles, 20, 20 15 miles an hour. So it'd be, give you a pretty good walk. Well, what I've just described to you, seven times 10 to the 18th joules is about, oh, 100,000 Hiroshima bombs. That's how much energy it would take to create 175 pounds of, of matter, uh, which is a lot of energy. And you're not going to just be carrying that much around on the enterprise. And that's what it would take if you're going to create stuff that are replicated. So when we get back to things like the post-scarcity society, um, and that's why the, the guy on love, uh, life, life, love, and anarchy, when he talks about the replicate, doesn't understand the science, uh, nor does anyone in the Star Trek universe do either. So the other option is to have 175 pounds of other stuff just laying around but you could, that you could somehow mold by using a force field, quote-unquote, to do it, to do that. Unfortunately, there's no force fields around that will manipulate just any old kind of matter. There's only one kind of force field that will manipulate matter, um, and that's an electromagnetic force field. can't do with gravitational force. We don't have the ability to manipulate. Only, only huge masses can do that, and that's like solar mass or a planet, planetary masses at your or my level are too low, um, and we can't do it fast enough to really make matter move in any real, you know, any rational rate that'll look, you know, that, that will behave like a real person. But to use electromagnetic forces would require something that will react to, electromag to electromagnetic forces, and that would be uh, either a ferromagnetic or para- or diamagnetic material. Um, and there are only so many of those things. They make it feel like skin or look like it, or to have clothes on it. I mean, this, we're talking some great deal of complexity here. So the reality of that is breathtakingly incredibly complex. Um, and I really doubt that we're ever going to come to that kind of a thing in where someone's just going to walk in. More likely, and if you read about it on my website, I, I talk about what a real holodeck is going to be like. And what it's going to be like is a virtual reality system where we're actually not aware of our own bodies, uh, where a system is going to be, uh, it, where it's going, going to exist such that um, we'll be we'll be divested of the outside world, where we will, where our minds and, uh, will be inserted into a virtual reality. Um, and we'll deal in, in that space. We'll have complete awareness of a body, of our own bodies, but 
we won't have it on the outside. It will be an interior sensation. So, and we will exist with other people. We can do any kind of physical interaction with them, have any kind of emotional interaction with them, any kind of physical relationship um, from, you know, sexual to sleep to, um, to uh, uh, any kind of physical interaction from heavy stress, exercises and fights and um, even uh, simulated death. So, um, but that's the only way something like that would really work. So what they've shown is not real science. Yeah, it seems highly highly impractical if you actually get into it. Yeah, well, that's why yeah, I want yeah. to, I want to point out. Energy. Yeah. And cause, therefore, the amount of cost required would just be astronomical to be able to just prance about in a little room and have your little adventures. That's right. That's right. And plus, plus to be able to do it and change things rapidly to have not only create mass, but then move it around quick to generate the sound, yeah. to generate uh, changes in heat uh, on a body, to go um, uh, to generate a refrigerator with something inside it, like ice cubes. Um, um, uh, uh, like when uh, Picard is playing a detective, to have some guy come in and shoot bullets at him. Uh, you know, I mean, this is absurd. So, I mean, it's cool to think about. But it's not ever. It's never going to be a real reality in, in a physical sense, in, a, in an external sense. In a virtual reality, yes. So you, so you imagine like some sort of a situation where you would go and, or at least have it in your home, where you would put maybe like put on a helmet and then kind of disappear into this world. No, it would be one. The only way to do it is not a helmet. To really obtain, well, I guess you could do it with a helmet. In this, but it some be, sort of uh, final cord implant? No, you don't want... Well, yeah, you could. Or it could even be something as... Um, uh, uh, well, something like a, uh, a squid interface, a superconducting um, um, interface, possibly an implanted system uh, uh, of a, uh, a, a network of uh, superconducting... Uh, 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 a net, uh, Superconducting mesh overlaid on your cranium. I mean, overlaid on your on your brain. Um, uh-huh. I'm not sure what the what the technology of Neuralink is going to be that 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 um, Elon Musk has invested in, um, or is actually uh, uh, developing. Um, uh-huh. And then that's the other thing with Musk is that he's uh, warning us on the one hand about the problems of artificial intelligence that we have this issue of of um, becoming irrelevant um, in relation to artificial intelligence, that we have an opportunity to use uh, this neural link substance, which, as I say, is passive, uh, but would allow us to develop uh, more neural tissue in our, in our, in our brain um, that would make us less irrelevant. Um, but then something like that could also become or be made Active uh, potentially in a different revision, I suppose. Um, and then, but the neural link, on the other hand, is a way for us to plug into a system, an interface, if you will. So there is a kind of a, a mixed message from Musk here. Um, and then Musk is, the, Musk is a mixed bag himself because here he's making far more use of the 
government to build his empire than other entrepreneurs are. They're certainly using, they're selling to the government, sure, but they're doing a lot more of the development on their own dollar uh, or on their right. investors' on their investors' dollars, and I certainly support them. Um, the um, the uh, you know the electromagnetic resonance drive, for one thing, is uh, is not a government-funded project. It's it's being developed private, um, and there are a number of of, of companies out there with uh, with drive mechanisms. So. Uh, and possibly even the Alcubarri, um warp drive is a um, is, is potentially viable. Uh, when Alcubierre yeah. So hey, Mark, about that, about the the warp drive going faster mm-hmm. than the speed of light. Uh, yeah, actually, what, what, actually, it, it, it's interesting you say that because it, it actually doesn't violate the speed of light. If, um, uh, well, the it, amount of energy required to open a wormhole. It's not a wormhole. Yeah. It's not a wormhole. No. Well, so what is it then? Or what is what is the actual explanation? Well, Ancu- do you buy? Ancu- it? Well, uh, yeah, I do. Uh, the way Ankeberry uh, did, he 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 um, solved Einstein's equations. What you do is you decide what kind of solution you want, and you sort of back solve the equations um, to develop the uh, what you need. To do to achieve that solution. And his first uh, paper in 1992, he determined that you would need a certain amount of antimatter to do this. And uh, what his first determination was enough was antimatter equal to um, an amount the size of the, the of Saturn, which is quite a bit of antimatter. You know, it certainly made it impossibly impractical. Um, like now, CERN. The concern that CERN was going to make some antimatter, but it's like the type, like not even a pinhead, and it will yeah. only exist for a fraction of a second. Yeah, well, you can you can you can mine uh, antimatter from space. Um, you can collect it. You don't actually have to manufacture it. Uh, but anyway, NASA, after uh, they they didn't start on this initially right away, but. They've been working on it for a few years, and they've gotten the, the uh, antimatter requirement down to about um, 500 kilograms, about about 1,100 pounds. Um, now, what the Occupy Drive does is to warp the space um, time around the uh, vessel so that it it actually will. Um, cause the local space time to move with the vessel inserted in that space time. So the vessel itself doesn't move in relationship to the space embedded. It's the space itself that moves. So as the ship itself doesn't move in relation to space, the ship or this vessel does not, does not move faster than the speed of light. The space, it, the space it's in moves from one place to the other, and the, the space moves at a rate about 10 times the speed of light. So we can get to, um, say, Proxima Centauri in about, um, well, one-fourth of uh, four years, so about four months. 
um, well, less, well, what, whatever, uh, 48 over four, about five months, if you could collect uh, 1,100 pounds anyway. Now, that's a lot to collect. Mm-hmm. But with sufficient, and you have to, you have to do it by, um, uh, um, collecting them from, um, um, higher energy cosmic rays or passing through, uh, a thin layer of matter. So you do it by either going out to the rings of, of, of Saturn, um, and putting collectors on one side of it or on all sides so that Cosmic rays passing from either direction. Um, you you pick you you collect the antimatter that's uh, that's being knocked out, um, and you collect it before it before it interacts with other matter and can you know and, and releases the energy back into the into the environment. Um, right. And you can also insert um, your own matter to do it. Um, but there are, I'm sure there are strategies that will be developed to uh, enhance the ability to collect it. But, you know, I see um, in the future some way of trawling um, um, antimatter out of the system. In fact, I was considering using that idea like uh, a fleet of antimatter trawlers um, in the solar system um, just out collecting large amounts of antimatter. Um, it's, okay, you know, so so you're actually giving the warp drive in Star Trek kind of a pass and uh, one of the more plausible aspects of it. What about well, that, that's the thing because it, 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 it the warp you see because that actually would be a warp drive. It uses mm-hmm. a warp space to do it, so you're not actually traveling fast in the speed of light. That's the thing. You're not breaking Einstein's speed limit, and that's the, okay. see, that's, that's that's why. See, if you actually traveled faster than the speed of light, if you could break past that that um, barrier, see the, the the reason you can't actually get past that barrier is it requires infinite energy to do it. As you right. move faster, first of all, time dilates. So from a, from a, from another well from another observer, um, you slow down until. In essence, by the time you get to the speed of light, you're, tra- you're not moving at all uh, to the other observer. It's what happens as you travel, as you fall into a, a, a black hole. Um, to, to someone outside the black hole, you appear to stop moving completely. And then, of course, your mass increases. So it takes infinite energy to uh, accelerate yourself to the speed of light. So you have two problems. You stop moving, and, and it takes infinite energy to get to the point where you stop moving. So it's like, well, why even try? So there has to be some right. other way to do it. You'd have to do it through some some feature like a like tunneling, like a like a semiconductor, uh, like in a semiconductor, like in a tunnel diode, um, where where the electrons um, actually break through the barrier through a process called quantum tunneling. I don't know if there's an equivalent process in in um, in in breaking from the sublight. To the, the superluminal uh, regime or not, but um, but if you do, then all of a sudden you um, you travel back in time. So and that is the solution to uh, to uh, um, faster than light travel in Minkowski's. All right. So what about transporters then? 
what do you give those a pass also? Because aren't you essentially just incinerating one person and then creating a copy of that person in another place? Yeah, that is a, that is an issue. That is an issue because there's certainly a lot of philosophical issues around that. Um, mm-hmm. You would certainly be um, um, taking um, you, you you wouldn't be um, taking uh, creating a new matter out of energy again because of the cost of, of 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 the energy to do it. As I said, for every 175 pound man or or woman, um, if you happen to have a fleet of uh, or a crew of Amazons, um, you of course uh, for smaller people, of course the energy costs would would go down. Um, right. By, you know, linearly. Then I uh, demand transporter neutrality. Well, what you'd have, yeah, right? You'd, what you'd have, yes. I mean, non. We'd have to have a, a, a non-sexism a clause <laughs> in the in transporter usage. But what we'd have to have is a source of of um, of components available. Um, various. Uh, uh, um, atoms of different compounds, different, different substances, different elements, in order to recreate um, the needed proteins and stuff that compose a person's body. You couldn't just, you wouldn't have the energy necessary to create from out of out of nothing. In other words, out of pure energy, um, every person that you send out. So that way, that no, not a way of transport. Whatever um, you either have. You either have a, 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 a tanks and tanks of molecules to assemble, essentially uh, print um, by epitaxial positing, like crystal, or like a semiconductor, or some other way. So um, dilithium uh, crystals are real. <laughs> well, you know that's the other thing. Um, um, yeah, you could not actually create dilithium crystals in a replicator. Because if you could, then you would also have the ability to have um, perpetual motion. Because you could create dilithium crystals from the energy generated by the ship, and then you could power the ship with dilithium crystals. Problem is, you'd use all the energy from the dilithium crystals just to create more dilithium crystals, and you wouldn't have any left over to do anything else. So you'd have, it's a, it's a giant cluster clock, essentially. Um, um, so, um, you know, pull a train for Jesus. All right. Yeah. Um, how about Daniel, you want to weigh in on this question or also Mark, um, throughout the movie and throughout Star Trek in general, you get the sense that the Federation isn't quite as benevolent as it appears to be. Um, Mm -hmm. you get the idea that, uh, at one point, one scene in the movie, they're drinking some kind of alcohol, but one of them remarks that it's illegal. Um, how totalitarian is the Federation? Because I know the um, several villains in Star Trek's past have remarked about the Federation not being as benevolent as it makes itself out to be. Well, it's absolutely not. I mean, they um, they do not allow. Almost like the United States. Um, you um, once you're in, you can't get out. It's a Chinese finger trap theory of um, of uh, of state. Um, you um, you pay to get in, 
And, uh, you know, it's like, um, uh, you know, there was a young harlot named Sue who filled up her sweethearts with glue. She said with a grin, you pay to get in. Now you'll pay to get out again, too. Um, um, and that's exactly how the United States works. Um, I mean, the only right, thing... Right, you try and eat and they'll start a war. <laughs> that's right. Now, I'm, I'm, I would gladly give California a pass even though I love living there. Um, um, there are some things about that state which um, yeah, I think anything on the West Coast is just a wonderful place to live. I I have relatives up on Mercer Island uh, who lived on Mercer Island. Now they're up in um, in um, oh, um, oh, La Conner, uh, up there by the really? tulip uh, yeah, fields. Uh, yeah, that's Right around where we're at. Yep. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I um, grew up uh, not not far from Connor. Okay. Daniel did. Yeah, I, yeah, I like it up there. Up by um, what's uh, what's that uh, something pass up there where the where the water flows out into that called a high bridge. Deception um, pass. Yeah. Deception pass. Yeah, I've uh, done some crabbing out there before. So. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Hung up. Hung hung there a few times. Of course, always. Recently, uh, um, um, I've been watching uh, USC go up there to kick Washington's ass. So I really enjoy that. And I'll enjoy it for the next, I think I'll enjoy it for the next few years. So, um, well, maybe not. Uh, maybe yes. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll lay you money on that one. Um, not odds, but money. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's fine. It's nice for a change, you know. Um, we got a good quarterback for the next couple of years, but anyway. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I'm liking our coach. They really turned the program around. Yeah. Well, I I know our coach turned USC helped turn USC around. That's for sure. But finally, the coach. It's not uh, not a drunk or a or a, a mental case. So <laughs> yeah, you, you could be talking about UW also. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, hey, Mark. Uh, speaking of Star Trek, you sent me some clips to play. Uh, is there a good time to to weave those into our narrative here? Well, actually, I, I, the only one. The only one. Um, I mean, I just the. Uh, I mean, the, the the theme song, of course, is is no big deal. I mean, you can play that anytime. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Trouble with Tribbles, by the way, was written by David Gerald, who um, he wrote the first book, 
I read on writing science fiction um, called Worlds of Wonder. It was it's a great book on writing science fiction and fantasy. And some of the some of the best parts of that book were about trouble with the trouble with tribbles, and also about two big two big things about writing science fiction. One is is writing metrically. Two, um, how to write about memes in general, and also something called E prime, which is an interesting topic. E prime is writing without the existential verb. That is the verb to be. There must be thousands of them. Hundreds of thousands. 1,771,561. That's assuming one triple, multiplying with an average litter of 10, producing a new generation every 12 hours over a period of three days. And that's assuming that they got here three days ago. And allowing for the amount of grain consumed and the volume of the storage compartment. When one eschews that from his or her writing, you, um, or G. Uh, I said he or she, uh, or G, or G. Don't oh, be yeah. Binary. Don't be binary in your genders, Mark. Oh, oh I'm, I apologize. Oh, fuck me. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> you can go with us. Gender um, normative bigot. Ableist. Well, I'm sorry. There is a, um, um, there was this great thing on, um, on YouTube from a year or so ago, a, uh, from the German Parliament, I don't know if you saw it, but in response to a request from one of the parties to include all genders in their addresses, Leon, this, this fellow went through all sixty um, possible combinations, <laughs> and it took him about it. five. It took about five minutes, and he addressed all of the possibilities, and then, and then his response was no. And he sat down. So it, it was yeah. interesting. I don't know if you saw that, but it's, it was pretty funny. Yeah, so, I saw it. German Parliament. Yeah. That's, what I'm, that's what I'm described to. Yeah, it was it was hilarious. That was my introduction to this whole topic. And that was, I, I think it was about the last time I concerned myself with it. For the best. Yes. Uh, I tell you. I, you know, there's certain things in this world I just can't worry myself about. And there are plenty of other people worrying about it, including those who are most concerned with it. So I will, I will let them that you know create a digest for me, and periodically I will look at it. So, but uh, yeah, so, uh, E prime is, is an interesting topic, and the nice thing about it is that if you if you um, um, try to write that way, you will exude active writing uh, and and avoid as much as possible. Passivity in your writing, and that's real. It's it's important because um, passive writing makes your writing sound uh, very um, very diminutive, like you're afraid. It's it's good for writing the, the, the dialogue of bureaucrats, you know, or or people with weak personalities. Um, it's really intended for them. Um, A. E. Van Vogt um, wrote a novel in the 30s called The World of Ape, a World of, of Null. A. Null A um, was stood for um, non-Aristotelian, meaning non-Aristotelian logic. Um, and it was based on the work of this um, Polish uh, mathematician, was a guy who also uh, developed Polish notation and then uh, 
reverse Polish notation on which the Hewlett-Packard calculator's RPN notation was based. And that led to uh, a certain type of semantics uh, that um, the former California senator, S.E. Hayakawa, taught at the University of San Francisco and also into a kind of um, sales techniques that was, I keep, I forget what it was, what it was called. Anyway, um, there was a lot of interesting, A. Van Vogt that wrote this book, World of Null A. And then recently, a, a, a current uh, science fiction writer wrote a final novel, a, uh, a sequel to it, with permission from the Van Vogt estate, which was called, I think, I forget the name, it was Null A, um, um, Extending the Concept. So, and I haven't read it yet, but I'd like to. The World of Null A is a very interesting experiment in, uh, in thought. So, um, of course, it's in a, it takes place, part of it takes place on Venus uh, in those days when uh, people didn't realize Venus was not a place uh, people could actually live and breathe. But, uh, you suspend your judgment enough. It's a really interesting read. So, anyway, replicator. There's another topic that uh, is worth talking about. Uh, we kind of touched on them. Um, replicators, again, are another uh, um, concept that will not end want. And the, the Ferengi, by the way, are, the, are our heroes of the uh, galaxy. In the, in the Star Trek universe, um, they are... If, if there were actually another technological society out there, Star Trek and all the other science fiction um, model um, modalities uh, that occur in fiction, um, at least uh, cinematic fiction, except for uh, a few, fill the uh, universe with other cultures. Well, at least Star Trek has one believable and uh, truly um, vivid culture that actually makes sense, and that's the Ferengi are a, an, an ANCAP culture that works. They essentially are, are governed by CAP. They have a vision of, uh, a spiritual vision of, uh, that is, is marked by worlds connected by, um, by mutual support through, um, needs that are supported by other worlds where supplies are available to meet the needs of other worlds. It's uh, amazing. It's the only society that actually works based on, that works without violence. It's uh, really an egalitarian society that's, uh, that doesn't have uh, violence. It doesn't have uh, really much in the way of any kind of, of evil dictatorships. So it's... Uh, and it's amazing. No one um, gets really upset with these guys, except they're kind of kind of displayed as. Um, I mean, they're kind of made fun of in the shows, but in reality, they're not bad guys. But you have to kind of look at them closely, and that's the point that um, life, love, and anarchy makes uh, finally when they get around to it. I mean, if you can get past this guy's um, uh, science mistake and you can get past his um, mythology about the, the Star Trek. You know, he goes through this um, sort of uh, a history that he draws, you know, on uh, you know, how, Star, how the Star Trek universe develops from 
the original show and then on into the uh, final Star Trek, uh, at least where he stopped, not with the, the new upcoming Star Trek television show. Uh, that makes sense. It, it, it works. But, you know, he fills it in with some ideas uh, that um, Khan and his group, you know, he uses images of uh, uh, Freemasons, uh, images of Freemasons. Um, which is not really, yeah. Which is not um, really part of is not written up at all in Star Trek, but he just sort of uses it. Uh, maybe it's just, maybe he just has this um, sort of idea about uh, Freemasonry is, uh, still sitting behind the uh, workings of the world. I mean, he could use uh, he could use the Bilderbergers, or he could use Robert Anton Wilson's uh, ideas as well which uh, seems to fit in more with a lot of anarchist ideas about uh, some of the prehistory of, of the current world situation. I mean, Aunt Wilson was sort of uh, fits into a lot of agorists. I know, certainly, um, that I know back here, uh, look to Wilson um, as kind of a guru of uh, anarchist mythology. Anyway. Okay. You familiar with Aunt, you're familiar with Wilson? He certainly has a science fiction follower. Yeah, I'm okay. not familiar with him, but cool. I will look it up. But hey, speaking of mythology, let's come back to our movie a little bit, because uh, we've been going almost 90 minutes, and I don't know if we've talked enough about the film to make this actually a show about Star Trek Beyond. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no problem. You've got right. plenty of awesome stuff going on, but we are essentially talking about movies and kind of want to be able to get this show done today if we can. So, where did we last leave our heroes? They had uh, flipped the shell of the Enterprise over on the um, the woman who betrayed them. She was trying to keep the sure. device, or she was trying to find the device. And then, uh, so she gets crushed, and then what? Then uh, Jayla takes Kirk and an injured Spock and Bones to the outpost where Crawl is and tries to free them using a distraction of some sort uh, with right. the motorcycles? Yeah, yeah, the motorcycles and her um, a hologram-type device. Yeah, now that hologram, she was using it earlier in the film fighting the guys who are going to get uh, Scotty, and they could fight, right? They like they would, they would had masks to them, so they were actually fighting the people like physically? Or were they just mirror images? They were just mirror images. It, it was straight out of the first Total Recall with um, Schwarzenegger. It was a device that projected his image. Now, in this case, it projected uh, Kirk's image ten times over. But each image was different, doing a different thing. It was different, but it was the same idea. It was still to confuse, Um, and that's all. It didn't matter really whether it was doing different things or not. It was the whole idea was to confuse uh, Crawl. So um, did anyone else get the, the vibe that they were trying to make him look like a Captain America in that series on that old style on the motorcycle? motorcycle? Yeah. He definitely oh. did. I don't know if they were trying to make him look that way on purpose, but he definitely, yeah. Well, he was also had a motorcycle in the first movie, so it kind of harkened back to that, too. Right. So, yeah, they're certainly foreshadowing. Um, from that movie into this movie as well. So I'm not sure if it was, it was uh, as much Captain America as it was some foreshadowing from the first movie. So it could be either or it could be both. 
Right, okay. So they've distracted, and then they uh, get the crew out of the, the cave, or out of the prison, and Scotty starts beaming them, I think, 20 at a time. He's able to adjust, what is it, the uh, transporter room on the Franklin that they've uh, yeah, rebuilt? Which was, for yeah, it was, an in, it was an industrial it was an industrial transporter, not intended so much for personnel use. It was um, designed for um, cargo. Right. Right. So, so then they get the people off out of the prison and onto the Franklin, and then they take off, right, and get back to the floating snow globe space station. Right. And you had some comments on that in, in your notes, Mark. Talk about the space station a little bit. It, it's uh, they're totally for a wow factor. It's a the idiocy. It makes no sense. Uh, they have this huge empty space that they have to fill with an atmosphere. Instead of a normal space station that would have smaller tubes um, filled with a restricted atmosphere, so there would be far less uh, resource required. Uh, plus, they have stationary walkways. I mean, they have um, people walking um, in, a, in an artificial gravity environment. So they have obviously have the artificial gravity field somehow set up. You know, this has been something they. They never talk about that. Just exists uh, uh, some some assumption. Um, uh, it exists in Star Wars. It exists in Star Trek. It exists in all kinds of science fantasy like this. Um, there's never. I mean, it, it just is assumed. It, it's uh, not something that is really ever going to exist. Um, but it just is done. You know, it's done. It's right. there. It's uh, total. Foolishness. Things like like good science fiction, like the Expanse, doesn't have it. And and this is something that people need to promote. Uh, I mean, we want to have real science fiction for, for kids to see, not stuff that. I mean, I I really would like people to be promoting into something that is scientifically rational or, or more reasonable something that has a scientific explanation or potentially a reasonable scientific explanation. That's why I have my site. So we can talk about some potentially or some way to, to rationalize something into real science. That's, you know, that's, that's my thing. I'd like to have a, a rational world. That, well, yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm, I just get, I just, get, I cringe. I'm sorry. I, Maybe my expectations are set too high, but when people are willing to vote for any of these people we have no running kidding. for office, I just—I mean, I mean, there there are there are there are reasonable philosophies out there, but I mean, there's there's a lot of good science out there, but you don't see it enough in in cinema, I guess, because it's just it gets boring. I mean, at least there were some there are some movies that. It had some reasonable theses to them. I mean, even even the arrival was was pretty good. Mm-hmm. It, it had another it had another civilization, which in of itself is not likely. Uh, we can talk about that too. The actual, uh, I mean, the the whole concept of so many other civilizations, technological civilizations, is is idiotic. I mean, the the, the existence of that many other technical civilizations is absolutely beyond belief. But people want it to be real. They want there to be all these other civilizations out there, but they're just not there. It's not 
at all likely are. It, the things that we found out there, just with the, the uh, Kepler mission, don't look like likely possibilities for technological civilization. There's possibility of, of very low-level forms of life. But a lot of the places we found, if they have water on them, are not going to have much land. And most of them aren't going to have water. They may be in zones where water could be. But it's unlikely that a lot of them are going to have water. And if they do have water, as I said, they're not going to have much land. They're going to have a lot of water. But, but, but Mark, the sheer number of planets out there, there's got to be a bunch of Goldilocks planets out there. I mean, there's got to be that doesn't mean there's millions. Any, that doesn't mean millions of them. No. No, not at all. With trillions of planets in the universe, I didn't. We're not talking about the universe. We're talking about we're talking about a galaxy right now. Anyway, the reality is that a lot of planets. I mean, a very high percentage of these planets are tidally locked, which means one side is facing the central sun, or the central star, which means that there's only a, a habitable band maybe 40 to 50 miles wide around the diameter of the planet. A side that's, that's very hot, a side that's very cold, is uninhabitable. For a technological civilization to develop under situations like that is near impossible. And then, you, additionally, you have to have a number of very unlikely things to occur. I mean, the fact that life got to this as far as it did on our planet required a number of incredibly improbable things to happen. I mean, it, things just had to be just right. I mean, we had to have a, a tilt to our planet for seasons to occur, for weather to vary with seasons so that we could develop plant life that would see and have a growing seed. I, I mean... It, uh, you had to have a lot of things that would occur for plant life to get past the the simple uh, simple funguses and um, ferns and and that type of life, a um, mold and whatnot to end up with uh, things like deciduous trees and um, and evergreen type 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 tree and seed seeding plant plants that uh, have a growing season a, a non growing season harvest time um, planting time. So, you know, unless there's some other Well, you're describing, you're describing life as it exists on this planet, but that doesn't necessarily mean that life as we don't know it wouldn't exist on another planet under different conditions. No, but it's very unlikely that if there were another type of life that we would ever detect it, because it's very unlikely it would communicate in a way that would be in a way that we would recognize as non-random or a way that would we would do it. You know, and there was every civilization that exists in the Star Trek universe has a carbon-based life form except the weird kinds of, you know, once in a while you run across a silicon-based life form like they did once in in the original Star Trek. Um, gas clouds or, yeah, energy Yeah, storms, gas clouds, which, which make absolutely no sense. I mean, this is, you know, this energy-based life or the Q-based or the right. um, consortium or whatever it's called where you end up with the uh, shapeshift, uh, whatever. Uh, you know, these are very strange um, and, and fantasy type of life forms. 
know, most life is going to be biology similar to ours because it has to be a system that can replicate, that can pass down genetic characteristics from one generation to the next, that can base itself on a competitive structure that will have a, that will have selection effects of an evolutionary of an evolutionary style. I mean, even I mean, people think want to say that the scientific method was invented, but in reality, it's just a selection effect of evolution. You know, it it well. Lord, are we moving toward what? Are we moving towards the silicon-based life form, though? Not necessarily. I mean, we may augment ourselves, but that's not a new life form. That's just well. That, for now. No, I don't really think so. That is that is a, a cyber, if anything. But we really can't, you know, we don't want to do uh, what Musk is warning us against, and that is to make ourselves um, irrelevant. That's what we need to invoke. Asimov's four laws of robotics in any type of um, artificial intelligence system that we build to make sure we do not allow ourselves to become slaves to any system that we ourselves design. In other words, we do, want to, we do not want to create our own a master. Right. If we're going to free ourselves from the slavery of the state, we don't want to create a new system of slavery in technology. I mean, that would work against our, our, our whole concept of, of freedom. But isn't it inevitable that someone will create an artificial intelligence that isn't subject to Asimov's laws? Yes, but we can't allow that to happen. We have to make sure that we do not allow ourselves to be subject to that. And we have to be ready to fight against that as, as free human individuals. In other words, like we're willing to fight against the state. Right. Okay. Someone will try. Someone will make it. We must prevent that from taking, you know, from ourselves. That's why we create things like Tor. Uh, why is his name? The um, guy who ran for president on the, in the Libertarian McAfee. Party. McAfee is coming out with his phone and says it's almost, almost half yeah. proof. Of course, if, if you do hack it, it will try to murder you. So he has a joke, of course. But, uh, <laughs> he, you know, he was accused of murder. Yes, that's um, right. He was. Yeah. So, and that his phone clearly try to murder you if, it, if you hack it. No, that's, okay. how it that's how it prevents hacking. So, um, right. My, my little attempt at humor. So anyway, um, but that's something we all, we have to guard against and very careful. I write about that on my site, too. I mean, I'm very concerned about that. Absolutely concerned about that. Bill Dick was concerned about that. He wrote about that in his science fiction. I mean, it was it was a lot of his. Um, it was part a lot of his um, thematics was around surveillance state issues. I mean, it was in it was Orwell. It was all about 1984. In Ingsoc was uh, you know we can't let that concept. We can't let that. I agree. Happen. Agree absolutely. I mean, this has to be our our watch. Um, that's why, Robert, you know, you, you should look into um, LFS.org. So, I will. Actually, I pulled that up. Um, looks pretty cool. And check out... Um, society. 
Yeah, check out um, um, El Neal Smith on um, Facebook. Um, he has a website. I can't think of it right now. Sure, the Forge of the Elders guy, right? Yeah. yeah he has a good Yeah, he has a good website. Corey Doctorow uh, won the award. Neil Stevenson won the award. Um, they also won given the award to um, Ancom type writer. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Um, the award's also gone to a fellow um, who was involved. I think with... Terry Pratchett won. Yeah. I, I don't normally think of him as a libertarian type writer. Right, and also um, another fellow who was involved in um, in uh, early um, security communication security type schemes. Can't think of his name, but from about twenty years ago, he's a science fiction author. Oh boy, I wish I could think of his name right now. I remember um, I've met Paul him Anderson, before. Ken McLeod, Victor Coleman. No, no, John Barley. No, Verner not yeah, Vern, yeah, Ving. yeah, Vinge. Yeah, because I, I know him from a committee I worked on um, back in the um, late night. We developed some, we're developing some uh, protection schemes for text files. So, yeah, I was involved in that kind of stuff, too. Well, I was, I was also managing political campaigns back in the 80s, late 70s and 80s. <laughs> I was, I, was a, I managed a couple of Republican campaigns, but I was getting paid. I was getting paid for I didn't care. I, I was I was managing Republican campaigns based on um oh um rules for radicals materials. So that that Saul Alinsky? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely yeah. it works. Yeah, it works. it doesn't matter as long as you can as long as you convince a um person they've been um been ignored by by the representatives uh, and been disenfranchised, effectively disenfranchised as a result, you can get them to vote for Republican. So <laughs> I I've used I used it, um I tried to use it for this libertarian guy I was advising, but it turned out he was just in it to, to advertise his products. So I I quit. I said, Screw you. I'm you're not you're not in it for True for true blue purposes, so, and then you're not going. If you're not going to pay me, I'm not going to work for you. Hell right. Uh, so let's get back. Do you have any more notes on the movie before we wrap up uh, our talk? Oh, on? I um, you know, the the I know right there at one forty seven thirty, they did throw in a um. I don't exactly remember what happened at that point, but it hit that last uh, Deus Ex mocking the moment. Um, right before crawl went tits up, and I wish I had the movie up. I would. I was. Well, no, see, so Kirk and Kirk and crawl are yeah. That's where they're fighting. And the, where, they're fighting the, and, where they're fighting in the duck. Yeah, they're fighting in that duck, and uh-huh. um, they're floating around. Yeah, they're floating around. Something. Um, I don't remember what happened, but it was one of those things where the you know the writers throw in. You know, it's it's one of those the police show up at the last minute, the kind of thing. You know, something happens that uh, something lucky happened. I don't remember what it was. Um, so was it the four locks and Kirk was getting stuck on the last one? That's right. That's what it was. Right, and then it seemed to me like Crawl had a change of heart and was going to go help Kirk. Was that what was going on there, or was he going that's there to it. finish him off? That's right. There was a change of heart. There were a few other nice things in there at the end, about a minute, 
A minute before that, there was a moment, oh, I think it was at one thirty forty. Sue had a moment where his expression looked like he was trying to, um, where he looked like he was constant, looked like he had an opioid uh, moment uh, of constipation. I mean, there were some good points in this film. You know, those rat, that rap music did screw crawls uh, machines up, so. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't plan for the rap. No. It'll always get you. That's yeah. right. Beastie Boys. That's right. Is that what that was? Beastie Boys. Yeah, Beastie Boys sabotage. Yeah, so classic from my time. Is that right? Yeah, well, I'm yeah. Uh, I'm still in the I'm Sergeant Pepper, and uh, the other day I picked music from the '70s, and it still stuck me at age 74 on this because I picked Peter. Hello, I'm still here. Mark, did we lose you? A lot. Yeah, I'm hearing some. I got some static. Yeah, just static. All right. Maybe, well, maybe he's been beamed to another dimension. <laughs> Maybe he got well, teleported. <clears throat> well, we'll uh, give him a moment to try to reconnect. Uh, Mark, if you can hear us, uh, maybe disconnect and then reconnect. And if not, uh, maybe Robert wishes to wind this show down. What do you think? Yeah, so Star Trek Beyond. Um, we really got into the weeds and the uh, science of it with our sciencey guest, Mark. I want to thank him for showing up. This is great. Um, he is definitely a guy that can spin a yarn. Anyway, Star Trek Beyond. Um, it's an entertaining movie, I guess, if you don't think about it too much. It really, you know, if you don't go into the weeds on all the world of Star Trek, I don't I think there's a whole lot to dissect, like how we usually do it, like morally and whatnot with the different scenes and stuff like that. But I don't know. I mean, it's competently made, competently acted, competent special effects but it's not a movie that I'll find myself going back to. I mean, unless I have I have to for the podcast, like I did. So that's that's my takeaway. What's yours, Daniel? Um, my take is I felt like this third version of the, uh, the reboot was probably the worst of the three. I felt like there were so many plot holes and logical gaps that were extrapolated upon by Mark uh, that now, you know, now that I've heard his take on it, and I'm like, yeah, this thing just doesn't work at all, and it seemed really weird to bring in the Beastie Boys. I mean, I kind of enjoyed it because it was harkening back to my childhood. It seemed like kind of this ridiculous mode of um, destroying the swarm. That swarm seemed like a super powerful weapon, you know? They could have taken down any anybody. They could have taken down the Borg with that thing, but mm-hmm. I, I guess but if the Borg knew, knew to play some the music, I guess I would solve it. Anyway, uh, overall, yeah, I didn't really like the movie all that much. Um, I don't know if they're going to make a fourth one. I know that uh, Leonard Nimoy died, and then so did uh, Anton Yelkin, who was Chekhov. So right. it'd be interesting to see if they're going to come back and try to do another one or not. Yeah, I mean, uh, they will. I mean, you know, these movies make a lot of money, so absolutely they will. And the Hollywood is, is the quest for serving the market. And if the market wants stuff like this, they will do it. I would do it, wouldn't you? I'd make this movie ten times over if it kept making me millions of dollars. I don't care. Well, yeah, I mean, you got a point there. I just hope that they they keep Simon <laughs> Pegg away from these. Keep him away from the script? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's fine as Scotty, but but not as a screenwriter in, in this realm, this genre. I think he was trying to put too many um, 
nods back to the original series in this movie. Definitely did that. Yeah, definitely did that. The kind of subtle ham-fisted. Yeah, he played off the the Spock and McCoy mechanic a lot, and then each different character had their own little things to do, which sometimes, I mean, you're dealing with an ensemble cast, that's what you do, but it seemed like it was kind of a just retreading older stuff for me. So I guess these movies kind of walk the fine line between nostalgia and giving you something new. But for me, this one didn't work out. I, not nearly as much as the, the first reboot movie did. Um, and these movies aren't exactly my cup of tea anyway. So take that for what it is. Yeah, indeed, sir. Well, I want to thank our guest, Mark Deardorff of Science Via Markets, for coming on and giving us all of the uh, ins and outs of wormholes and warp drives and all that stuff. That was really fascinating stuff, and I appreciate that he came on for that. Uh, if you guys are interested in checking out his work, go to sciencebiamarkets.com. We'll have a link to that down below. Uh, also, at actualanarchy.com, we have links for Amazon. We've got links for Turbulence Training. We've got links for Tomwood's Liberty Classroom. And uh, we always look for subscribes on the old YouTube. So if you enjoy our work, uh, give us a comment, a like, comment, share, or even another comment, three comments. Anyway, it's late here. I'm getting tired. <laughs> Run off the rails. My warp drive, my dilithium crystals can't take it anymore. I think I gotta close this one down. So thank you, Robert. Thank our audience. You're welcome, Daniel. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, my freedom babies. Everything you do contributes to a more free world. I appreciate it. You're helping me. You're helping yourselves. You're helping even the people that don't want your help. Like the stupid status that work against us all the time but I appreciate it so thanks a lot and thanks for listening and thanks for supporting the show any way you can and do thanks much Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do